What's up, everybody? This is John Odermatt, the host of Felony Friday. And before we get rolling into today's show, I want to take a quick moment to talk about coffee. That's right, coffee. The Lions of Liberty, we have partnered up with Anarcho Coffee, and we are selling our very own coffee. It's called the Morning Roar. It is a medium dark roast that has cupping notes of lemon lime, caramel, black pepper, and brown sugar. It is delicious. You can pick up some of this coffee by going to lionsofliberty.com slash coffee. We have a way there on your first purchase. You can get 10% off, but if you join the Pride, for $10 and up, you can actually get more than that. You can get 15% off every single order. Buy some coffee, support the Lions of Liberty, support another great libertarian company as well. Everybody wins. Lionsofliberty.com slash coffee. Welcome to Felony Friday a presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday, a weekly show right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. What is Felony Friday? What is this show? What do we do here? Well, Felony Friday is all about exposing injustice in this nation's broken criminal justice system. Do this a bunch of different ways. Sometimes I'll bring on you know, people who have lived through the system, spent time in prison, felons to, uh, to tell their story, to share their story. I'll bring in experts in different fields, forensics, uh, law enforcement. Today, I am talking with a fellow podcaster, but also a lawyer, DK Williams, the host of uh, a very good podcast, The Law. You know, I'll just be introducing DK in one moment here. Before I do that, I want to just remind you real quick, this is one of three shows on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Uh, if you love this show and you haven't listened to, listened to the other two shows, I really encourage you to subscribe so, so you get all three shows delivered to your listening device, which if you're uh, under the age of uh, 80 is probably a cell phone. So just subscribe on whatever app you use and you'll get our Monday show hosted by Mark Claritz, our longest running program. Our flagship program, our original OG Lions of Liberty podcast program, that's where Mark interviews uh, uh, libertarians uh, who are leaders and also host, uh, he's actually been doing recently, recently in this past week, he had a real good debate, Marxism versus capitalism. He's been doing a great job with debates, bringing that perspective to see both sides of an issue, which I think is really really useful. And I think it's a, uh, a niche that has not been filled, really, especially in the liberty movement. We get so much from from one side and uh, you don't even hear the other side. So the problem with that is you don't learn how to counteract it. I'll stop rambling about it, but Wednesday's show is Electric Liberty Land. That's hosted by Brian McWilliams. Brian does a very entertaining show and he brings you every single Wednesday your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty. And if you like these shows, subscribe. If you really like them, consider joining our uh, our Patreon program at patreon.com slash Lions of Liberty and supporting us there. Today's episode of Felony Friday is the 177th episode. That means you can find the show notes page at lionsofliberty.com slash FF177. Let's get into today's show. 
My guest today on Felony Friday is D.K. Williams. D.K. attended the University of North Carolina on a prestigious Moorhead scholarship and graduated with a B.A. in economics. He stayed there at Chapel Hill and uh, earned his J.D. with honors. Uh, He has tried cases uh, in the state and federal courts and also successfully argued a death penalty case before the North Carolina Supreme Court. Definitely want to talk about that with D.K., Um, DK also is the host of The Law uh, with DK Williams. You can find that over on the Launchpad Media Network. Uh, It's an in-depth but also entertaining podcast about both famous, um, uh, famous cases or famous rulings, famous decisions, but also current and otherwise not important uh, judicial decisions. Goes all the way back from Marbury versus Madison to uh, to current decisions happening right now today. Um, on it, DK discusses critically discusses and analyzes what the cases actually say, and uh, oftentimes it's different than uh, than what you may think it is. So, DK, great to have you on Felony Friday. Thank you for having me. It's my honor. I appreciate it. Always like talking. <laughs> yeah, we were just talking about that in the the pre show chat that. DK does a, a solo show. Every show, it's him going through these cases, talking about them. So uh, I'm just going to basically sit here. He's just going to talk the whole time. <laughs> no, not this time. <laughs> but uh, yeah, great to have you on the show. And what I like to do pretty much with all my guests is, you know, it's great to get some background uh, you know, on my guests yeah. and really learn what you're all about, where you're coming from. So, you know, you're a lawyer. Before we get to why you're a lawyer, maybe it's more important to talk about why you're a libertarian or how that journey occurred. So what's your, uh, what's your libertarian awakening story? You know, it's not like I was ever like a diehard socialist or a diehard Republican. I, um, I think I just kind of had that idea growing up that you don't mess with other people. I mean, you leave other people alone. I think it must've come from my parents and my upbringing. Um, I was, I'm a Southerner, I was born in Arkansas. Um, so I think all of that kind of, played in together. And then my freshman year of college, I heard some new people I had just met and we were sitting around talking and they started talking about um, not the fountainhead. Oh yeah. The fountainhead, not Atlas Shrugged, but the fountainhead. Okay. And I had never read it. I had never heard of it, but they're the way they're talking about it. I'm like, yeah, this sounds pretty interesting. I got to check this out. And so that was probably in college was probably the beginning of my, like actually studying it, putting a name to it, you know, reading the different um, aspects of it you know, finding out the difference between Ayn Rand and Murray Rothbard and everybody in between and, mm-hmm. and, and on the sides. So that's how I got into it. So did, did that have it all to do with your interest in the law? Did that play into to want to go in that direction? Um, <clears throat> it, it tied together, but I didn't have much choice, I don't think, just by the way fate had it. My mother is a uh, professional singer. She's got a master's in vocal performance. My father has a PhD in organic chemistry. And since I didn't get any of their talents, the only thing that was left was for me to become a lawyer. That's <laughs> all I had. I didn't get their genetics. It's, it's so funny how I <laughs> pretty much every lawyer I ask about the reason, you know, you know, what was the passion? What drove you to become a lawyer? Pretty much every story is sort of similar to that. Yeah, it just, right. just sort of happened. Right. I, no, what else could sense. I do? Right. <laughs> right. Uh, and now I'm trying to do other things as well. Trying to do other things. Yeah. That's, that's, that's cool. So like what, uh, when you started out as a lawyer, what type of law did you start practicing? Has that evolved over time yeah. or? Yeah. I, uh, first year out of law school, I went to North, I stayed in North, stayed in Chapel Hill. Uh, mm-hmm. I went to law school there, seven straight years in Chapel Hill. So pretty much, uh, became a local, which it's 
a good place to be local. I clerked for a federal magistrate judge in Raleigh, uh, Eastern District of North Carolina. Uh, so that was a great way to meet all the judges in federal court for that jurisdiction, the staff, the clerks, um, the U.S. attorneys, the pu- public defenders. So while I learned a lot about how the judicial system worked, meeting all those people was probably at least as important as um, you know seeing how the process worked from the inside. And, and seeing, you know, how much some people got paid for not doing very much, like, you know, the senior judges staff, for example, you, you kind of see how that how that goes. Um, and from there, I went back to my hometown of Greensboro. Well, hometown, I moved there in the ninth grade, and went to high school there. Closest thing I have to hometown, I moved around a lot growing up and uh, worked for an insurance defense firm there. So I got to try but my first year case was without a year out after the clerkship. So within two years of law school, mm-hmm. I graduated. Uh, so I got, it's a good way to get thrown into to civil litigation, you know, mm-hmm. defending people that, um, uh, that allegedly caused the accident. And how I explain this to most people is like, so what did you start? What back then? What do you do? How did you get started? Everybody's heard a commercial about I'm so-and-so and you need a lawyer. The insurance companies have a lawyer if you've been in a car wreck. I said, right. That was one of those guys. I was the insurance company's lawyer. That was me. Right? You were one of the big bad lawyers. Right? Uh, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It was a good way to get started. And then yeah. my boss at that time, when I was young, loved the courtroom. And he started getting into criminal law, criminal defense. And since he was my boss, so did I. And I started getting into that. And that's how I got involved with um, some of the uh, felony appointed cases. Um, so I got on the appointed list. For my county, which is Guilford County, Greensboro, North Carolina, and I uh, tried my first chair felony case was uh, an assault with a stabbing involved and everything. And first one, I got an acquittal, so I was pretty cool. Then from there, it's all downhill, though, right? And so I got not I got a not guilty verdict on that one. Yeah. Um, and he got involved in some more serious stuff like uh, death penalty cases, like trying them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't do that, but I got on the appeals. Uh, um, list. So I, I have helped people do post-conviction appeals on death row in North Carolina. So, so post, what, what do you mean? So post-conviction appeals. Yeah, so this, right. this is after they're, they're already sitting on death row. <clears throat> Correct. Um, and you're, they've had the, yeah, they've had the direct appeal. And this is the, the things that people talk about that take forever. Um, mm-hmm. get your, your first appeal up and then you, there are other things you can try to argue, like, uh, for instance, the, the, reason, the thing I got to argue before the North Carolina Supreme Court was whether or not the DA, the state, had to turn over certain evidence that they had in their file. They didn't turn it over at trial because they said it was, um, um, would have, uh, it was work product. It would have potentially harmed an uh, uh, informant. That type of thing, and that was no longer an issue. We said we were arguing that there was a new statute, and it was a new statute that said the back in North Carolina that said you had to turn all that over. The state had to turn all that over on post conviction, and they were saying no, it doesn't apply to us, and it, it did. Mm-hmm. So, so we took that up to the uh, state supreme court, argued that that statute as it applied in that case, and won it. And as far as I know, that statute is still there, and that's still the law. So, so that was that was cool. So when you say you won it, then somebody was taken off of death row, right? They're- I no, no. <laughs> he was not taken off death row. But the state had to turn over that evidence. Okay, death row case. So the guy was on death row. Gotcha. They didn't turn over that evidence that they were required to turn over, and I won the case that said they have to, and that that, ha- that applied throughout the whole state. So any okay. from that point on, they had to turn that over. So, so that's the victory. Okay. 
So yeah, and then it, I, I didn't represent him anymore for that. Somebody else took over. Okay. So you were you were just working in that specific on that specific uh, that specific aspect of it on that ruling. Correct. So, okay. So, um, as a uh, criminal defense lawyer, you know people probably ask you this all the time. Maybe not. Um, did you ever have any, you know, any of your clients that you knew were guilty, but you still had to defend them? I have no problem with that at all. I mean, I read um, Dershowitz has been in the news lately. He wrote a book of something like the most un- unpopular man in America or whatever, and all the horrible people he has represented. I'm not representing somebody to get them off from what they did. Mm-hmm. I'm representing the United States Constitution and limits on what the government can do to its citizens. And if we just go, oh, that guy's a piece of crap. Who cares? Mm-hmm. Well, the next person they come for might not be quite as much a big crap a piece of crap, right? And a lot of those people that are condemned as pieces of crap are, are innocent. And we have to keep that, um, that, that front, that fight as far away uh, as we can from the individual, individual's rights and, and limit the power of the government as far as we can to, to minimize it as possible as we can or as much as we can. And that's what I'm fighting for. And I have never made an apology for that. And I never will. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a really good point. I don't think I've ever heard it talked about that way that, I mean, you're almost defending, even if the client you're defending at that time, I mean, you know, maybe they're not the best person. It's not necessarily all about them um, right. because you, you could be setting precedents in that case, right? Absolutely. Every single case, every single, in, in just your regular old district court and whatever county you're in, you know, you go in there on a Monday morning, the docket read, it might take all morning just to read to the docket. Every single one of those cases is fighting on that front line. Every single one of them. So that's why it's important for, for all these criminal defense attorneys out there protecting the Constitution. Some of them might not feel that way, but I, I feel that way. And I think that's what they're doing, even if they don't feel that way. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> that's a good point. So are you still doing criminal law today? No, I'm not. I uh, don't do nearly as much exciting stuff as I did. I was also on the federal uh, appointed list for the Eastern District of North Carolina. Highlight of that was a three-week-long federal jury trial in Wilmington, North Carolina. And um, it, the reason it took so long is there were 13 defendants, but still we we're in there trying the case for three weeks. And um, I had a relatively minor alleged uh, participant in this drug conspiracy. Mm-hmm. And, uh, the, the three major people in the drug conspiracy got life in prison. And my lady got like 48 months, which is still not good, but it's, she got out. Right. Um, and one thing I like to tell people, and I bring this up with kids a lot that I, I'll go around and talk to, to different groups or, or even adults. I go, how, what weight of drugs or what quantity of drugs does the U S attorney have to bring in to the courtroom and show to the jury that this defendant right here sold or had possession of, and was going to sell what weight do they have to show to the jury for somebody to get life in prison for selling drugs? And they, you get guesses all over the place. Of course, the answer is none, is zero. They don't have to bring in a speck of dust of cocaine, right? They just have somebody come in and say, oh, yeah, I bought some from that guy. Mm-hmm. And if the jury believes them, that's all it takes. And this goes to one of the cases I talked about, um, U.S. versus Simpson. Um, I always get this name wrong. Let me see, I got the list here. But the idea of it was... Singleton, U.S. v. Singleton. It, okay. it was a, it's a circuit court case. It didn't go to the U.S. Supreme Court. I, I, you may be familiar with this one, but a criminal drug defendant was convicted. And at trial, her, her attorney said, you can't have these other defendants come in and testify against her. And it was a female. She's a mule, right? Just running drugs, carrying drugs. Mm-hmm. You can't have these other people come and testify against her. 
because you promised to give them time off their sentence that they've already been convicted for. And the U.S. statute says about bribery of witnesses for testimony is you can't give anybody a thing of value in exchange for their testimony. It's like, what's more valuable than two years of your life back or whatever it was, but, right? But they do that all the time. Yeah, right? yes, they do. Absolutely, they do. And that was the argument. And the three-judge panel agreed with the defendant. And they immediately file a motion to, to stay that decision, to have a hearing on Bonk on that, on that ruling. And uh, the on Bonk, they immediately stated it. They said, we're going to hear it on Bonk. On Bonk panel said, yeah, of course, the bribery statute doesn't apply to the government. What else are they going to do? How else are they going to get convictions? They've got to be able to bribe people to give their testimony, which is basically what they said. I might be twi- I might be characterizing it in a more flippant way, but that's the result of it. If I go up to somebody and go, hey, man, just tell the truth. Here's 10 bucks. I just want you to come in and testify when I call you and just tell the truth. Okay, I've committed a felony. But if the U.S. attorney goes, I'll give you five years of your life back, that's completely legitimate. And that to me is, is that, that, yeah. Yeah. That to me is, that's actually the very first one, the very first case I did on the law with DK Williams, USB Singleton on that one. Okay. Yeah. We'll link to that on the show notes page for yeah. sure for people Great. to check and, that out. And, and the U.S. Supreme Court refused to hear it. So of course, you know, after the circuit on Bonk overturned the panel. What, what is, what does on Bonk mean again? Oh yeah. That's so uh, on federal appeals. So you've got the, the trial level, which is just one judge who will mm-hmm. make a decision and then it goes to the Court of Appeals, whichever circuit you're in, and it's the random three-judge panel. That's my uh, okay. visual effects. <laughs> three-judge three panel. And that panel um, heard it and decided in favor of the defendant in that case, Singleton. En banc is the entire circuit because it depends on how big the circuit is, but there's 10 to 13, 14, depending on how big the circuit is, of these judges that uh, will all hear it. So the entire, if there's 13 judges in a district, not just those three that heard it originally, all of them will hear it. And you have to go back and, and do a, an argument in front of all of them. And then they vote again. And so it's basically like an appeal from the original uh, three-judge three panel to the entire panel. You're not going up another level. You're still in the circuit court, but you're going from three judges to all of them. That's all. And what, what does the vote have to be? Does it just have to be majority or... Just has to be majority. Okay. Yep. So, for example, and I can't remember the exact numbers in, in this particular case, but it was, so it was 3-0 amongst the three-judge original appellate panel. Those three judges all rule in favor of the defendant. They don't have to vote the same way on Bonk. I mean, they usually do, I think. I haven't seen numbers in that, but they usually are going to vote the same way. Um, so even with those three in defendant's favor, however many there were, the majority of them said, no, 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 no. Of course the state can, can give people years off their life back to testify, even though you can't offer them a sandwich. Because us mere serfs are the ones that have to be controlled, not not the feds. We've got to trust the U.S. attorneys, right? They're, they're, they're not going to screw anybody up. So so could a similar um, case be, could this be brought in a different circuit? Um, is there like another path to get uh, it to the, yeah. the same? Yeah, it, it could. Yeah, because that only that law only applies in that circuit. And again, I'm drawing a blank on which one it was, but it was out of Kansas. That's where the, okay. the, the trial was. And um, yeah, it could come from another one, but I think pretty much that argument, um, whenever it's been made at the trial court level, uh, I think it's certainly right after when all this was going on, it was being made all over the place, right? Mm-hmm. And once the on bonk panel came back and said, no, you can't do that, even a trial judge, say in Florida or California or wherever, is going to go, I'm not bound by that circuit's ruling, but I'm going to go along with it. 
I'm going to, I'm going to agree with their ruling because they're higher than me. And even though I'm not under their um, direct line of, um, of authority, mm-hmm. I'm going to buy that argument and it's never gone up that high to my knowledge. So wow. if anybody's ever appealed it from a trial court level somewhere else, it hasn't been heard, or at least it hasn't um, been t- uh, ruled in the defendant's favor. So how many different circuit courts are there in the United States? Oh man, I should have been up. I think there's 13. 13? There, okay. I, I, I could be off a couple there, but Is- there are, I think like 11 geographic ones from like, uh, you know, the, the Northeast and then the middle Atlantic and you know, they're all divvied up geographically. And then there's the DC circuit, which uh, DC court of appeals circuit. Let me get this right. DC circuit court of appeals. That's it. Cause that's the federal one. And um, they hear all the appeals from all of the administrative agencies. So it's pretty much a jurisdictional court, okay. right? So they hear all the appeals out of all the uh, regulations that the judicial, that these regulatory agencies do. So, uh, I think there's one for like overseas federal. There's a couple of those that um, aren't geographic, but most of them are just geographic. And I mean, the one that that I always see in the news, or I guess is uh, what is it? The Ninth Circuit is that the one that San Francisco that yep. it was very it was extremely liberal, right? Yep. But now it's yep. Trump just appointed. Didn't he have an appointment of a conservative judge there? Yeah, he's had several. He's had several. I don't know the exact number, but uh, he has certainly made an impact on how that, uh, that, that circuit has been, um, uh, been perceived and, and what is, how it's composed. Exactly. Yeah. That's the ninth circuit, California. And I think maybe Oregon and Washington or it's the West coast anyway. Okay. If not all of it, California. So with, with your podcast, you've done, it's like you're, you're in the thirties for numbers of episodes, right? So. Yep. Yep. 34 is going to come out tomorrow and 34. I, I'm really into this one because this was, um, or is as the uh, Jacobellis case. Anyway, it was, it deals with the first amendment and obscenity. And this was in the sixties. And there was a a, a guy in Ohio that was running a movie theater. He was arrested and charged with uh, criminal counts of obscenity for showing this movie. And it was a Louis mall. Who's a, now he's a famous French director, uh, a movie and actually rented it or actually had to buy it to see it. So I could see, get some context for this. And here we go. This is what it is. It's called The Lovers, right? Mm-hmm. And I was thinking, you know, I, I know it's going to be different from the 60s and today. You know, I'm not going it, to, it's going to be, whatever they considered salacious back then, it's going to be completely different than it was now. So I get that. But I'm still thinking, I'm, there's going to be something pretty salacious in this, right? There's not. <laughs> there's not at all. I mean, there is um, a sex scene which shows a little bit of a breast and that's all and it's not even i mean that's it right what really made people not like this the the reason they was called obscene is the subject matter it's a rich woman in french is they're all french um and she is bored with her life because she's rich and everything else to do her husband runs a newspaper in in the provinces in uh dijon and of course, being an American, when I see Dijon, I think, well, oh, that's like the mustard. Exactly. That's, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and so she's bored. And so she goes to Paris to see her friend all the time and starts having an affair with the guy there. She's kind of bored with that, too. And then the husband's kind of suspicious. He says, invite your friend and this guy, who I know you're spending time with, back to here to us. And let's all have a weekend together. Right. And she's like, no, no. But anyway, he kind of, they, they do it. So 
on her way back from Paris to her house, she, Carter breaks down. She meets this other guy. She has, starts eventually has an affair with this third guy, right? And now she's happy. Her husband was not, she wasn't happy with her husband. She wasn't happy with the guy she was having an affair with. Now she's happy with this guy and she leaves. She runs off at the end of the movie with this guy who she met like a day ago, leaves her daughter, right? Leaves her like 10 year old daughter. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's not, it's not saying this is a good idea, but this is what the movie is about. And the fact that this woman would be so scandalous and, and not feel bad about it. She didn't. She's like, I'm, I'm, I'm feel good about so this. So it's it's more about the the lack of morality in right. that than it is about anything uh, yeah. sexual or. Yeah. Yep. I mean, for the time, the sex scene was pushing the edge, pushing the boundaries, but it wasn't visual. I mean, it was because they were showing sexual acts. They were mm-hmm. like they like showed her face for a little bit of it, right? And that's mm-hmm. all. You could and that was that was the reason it was found obscene in Ohio. And the Ohio Supreme Court upheld this guy's conviction, but the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, this is not obscene. And since it's not obscene, it's protected by the First Amendment. And that's what we'll be talking about on the one that comes out tomorrow. Okay, because there was something I saw this. I don't know if this would relate to, to that or not, if it could be challenged in the courts. But there was I forget, I wish I remember what state it was in. It was one of the southern states. I want to say Kentucky. That might not be right. But a guy had a bumper sticker. Oh yeah. This was today I, I saw, saw this. Yeah. And it said instead of the bumper sticker, like I eat ass or I love yes, to eat ass. Exactly. Something like it that. It said I eat ass is what it said. Yes. <laughs> and it was Florida, I'm pretty sure. Of course it was Florida. <laughs> Florida man. Yeah. <laughs> um yeah, so the cop pulls him over and says, You gotta take that down. He says, No, it's just words. Right. Ends up right. I think ends up getting arrested because there's a uh, there's a mug shot there. Yeah. But uh I mean, would this guy have have recourse under that? Uh, that, That's going to get thrown out. I mean, there's no way that's not going to get thrown out. Is that just a rogue cop just being crazy, do you think? I'm sure there was a statute, either a state statute or a local ordinance about obscenity, right? I'm sure there was that. And this cop was decided to enforce it. And so he's enforcing the laws on the book. I mean, I, I mean, it's not, uh, that's the problem with obscenity. How do you define it? And that's the thing that came from this case well, this is where Potter Stewart said, I, I can't define pornography or I can't define obscenity. Nobody can really define obscenity, but I know it when I see it. That's where that comes from. This from this particular case. Okay. And, you know, and that's the problem with it. You can't define it. And I don't think a bumper sticker with the words on it, no matter what they are, is going right. to be really obscene. It's so different. Think, it's different for everybody, right? Yeah. That's going to get tossed out. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So you, uh, you like, you talk about cases from a long time ago, like with, with the obscenity. You talk about new things now. You've talked about uh, the, the Obamacare ruling, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, so do, do you rotate back and forth, or how do you pick what you're going to talk about? Uh, just what – if there's something new that's – if something in the news, I'll try to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but when there's not, I'll just go pick a famous case that I want to do. Right? So uh, uh, so there's a lot of the famous ones, and the the – the recent one about the Obamacare decision, that was the district court judge out of Texas who said since the Trump Congress repealed the penalty, the, well, the tax, it's a tax now, since they repealed the tax and the reason that it was upheld originally was because Congress has the power to tax. And this district court judge says, well, they took the tax away. And that was the only reason it was legitimate by the Supreme Court's ruling a couple of years ago. That's not there anymore. Therefore, the whole thing is not uh, good anymore. 
and this is one thing I like to, I, I try to make this point routinely because when that district judge's opinion came out, there were people on the news, mostly a bunch of Democrats, Democratic elected officials going, how, what an idiot that judge is. The Supreme Court said that that was okay. How can he can't do that? He's just trying to overthrow the Supreme Court. They obviously hadn't read it because he addressed that. He said, yes, this is what the Supreme Court said. They said it was legit because it was based on the power to tax. That tax is gone. Therefore, it's not. It's clearly they hadn't read that. They had no idea what the analysis was. And so and I see this a lot with like um, um, Citizens United. All these people are up in arms about Citizens United is so horrible. Oh, did you know that that if Citizens United had turned out the other way, the government could censor documentaries? What? They have no idea. I mean, that was the issue in Citizens United oh, wow. was whether or not the government could censor a documentary because it was too close to an election and it was an anti-Hillary documentary. Um, and they said, no, you can't do that. Um, but they could do it to anybody, right? If that had changed, then the government can say, no, you can't do that. Too close to the election. We're going to ban you from showing that documentary. And people don't know that. So, and this actually came up with a friend of mine who was a professor, um, Tom Krenowitter, who does a lot of great stuff at speakeasyideas.net. And um, he was a professor and this undergraduate came up to him, a female, it was like, I'm in charge of the, um, uh, the, the anti-abortion group here on campus. And we want to have a, a rally to overthrow Roe versus Wade. And he's talking to her. He said, well, the first thing we should do is we should like, we should read it so we can talk about what it actually says. And so that's something that I try to get everybody to, to, to do. And I do these podcasts and I read these cases, not so you don't have to, but so you might be interested enough to go ahead and read it or, and you'll get my perspective on it. And I have, I have a bias. I tell you where I'm coming from. I think I'm right. And I try to tell you why I think I'm right. Uh, but you, you know, you, you buy it or you don't, you can read it and make up your own decisions. Uh, this is my comparison. It's like, would you, if somebody said, Hey, what do you think of that restaurant? And somebody said, well, I haven't been, but I heard it's really bad. Okay. Well, you haven't been right. Or what do you think of, of that book? Well, I haven't read it, but here's my opinion. You know, it's, what's that worth? Right. And to me, it's the same thing with all these people on TV and the radio yelling and pontificating about cases they clearly haven't read. Yeah. So unless you've read it, I, your opinion is worth as much as a restaurant review of somebody who hasn't eaten there. Well, yeah, if it doesn't align when you talk about the media, if it doesn't align right. with their agenda, then you know they, they, they won't even talk about it. So they'll yeah. only take what they need. Absolutely. Yeah. Out of these cases, do you have do you have a favorite one uh, that you talked about? Do you have, or maybe not a favorite one that you think is maybe that's a better question. One that you, if you were going to point people to an episode to listen to, um, do you have a particular one that, that you would pick out? Oh, that is a good one. Um, well, the one, I don't know if the episode is particular, it's better than any of the other ones, but the, the one that I, the case that I discussed that I think really eviscerated the constitution and the enumerated powers, the ideal of, of concept of federalism is Wickard v. Filburn. And that's the one where there's the FDR era where FDR had all of these plans that Congress was approving to regulate the economy, to plan the economy in essence. And part of that was farmers could only grow so much wheat and they had this whole organization, well, all kinds of crops, but wheat in this particular case. Uh, Article one, section eight of the constitution lays out 17 or 18, just depends how you count them, legitimate, uh, con- legitimate things that Congress can do because, you know, the, the states were all, hey, we're our own states. We, we don't want to give up all of our authority to the federal government. We want to limit it. Here's the list of things they can do. That's like run a post office, have an army, have a Navy. Uh, and one of those is a bankruptcy, mint coins, things that make sense, right? Right. One of those things is regulate commerce among the states. 
And the point of that was they didn't want, say, Virginia to put a tax on North Carolina tobacco coming into Virginia. So they wanted free trade between the states, between, you know, each was a separate entity, right? So they didn't want, because that was going on in the Articles of Confederation. And so this, so that's one of the things they agreed to let the feds do is, is to regulate that and not let the states basically tax each other's stuff, like put, put um, tariffs on the state stuff coming into whatever state. That could become a huge mishmash, right? Uh, so that was the point of it. And so the government uh, wasn't, uh, the federal government wasn't going to try to, say, regulate uh, an optometrist office in your city, right? Uh, right. That's something the state can do, but the, that's not interstate commerce. So at least it wasn't originally. It might be now, unfortunately, the way they've, they've uh, interpreted it. But Wickard v. Filburn was one of the first cases that just blew that distinction away or blew that limitation on the federal government away. Mm-hmm. It was during the, the New Deal, FDR, uh, trying to control the economy, trying to make everything right because he and his smart bureaucrats uh, knew how to regulate the economy, right? They, they were smart. They knew that every farm should only be able to grow so much or how much each farm should be able to grow. Right, and, because they, they studied this and they're just geniuses and brilliant and they know, yeah, they know all that stuff. Right, absolutely. They know better. They know better. They, they can't just let a free market work. That's, yeah. that, that resulted in the depression, right, according to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they can't let that happen. So one of these programs, there's a million of them, but one of them was the federal government telling farmers throughout the country how much of what crops they could grow. And one guy was said, you, you can't tell me what to grow. You, they came in and told them you can only grow X amount of wheat. And he said, well, you can't tell me that because what I'm growing, I'm not selling. So it's not commerce at all. Mm-hmm. And it's not crossing any state lines. So it's not interstate. So since it's neither interstate nor commerce, Congress power to regulate interstate commerce can apply to this. You know, it, it, it's, it's ridiculous. It's absurd. Mm-hmm. And he was right, except the Supreme Court said he wasn't right. right. So that basically blew the doors off of any interstate commerce limitation on what Congress could do. Wait, so was that at the time, was that a surprising ruling? Like, uh, was that something that wasn't expected for, by the, from the Supreme Court? Um, I, you know, I, I wish I had a better answer to that. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know what the popular zeitgeist was at the time about that. Mm-hmm. There certainly was a huge uh, momentum towards federalizing the government. There was certainly there. I mean, yeah. FDR was president, right? Um, uh, Wilson had been president. So there were certainly a lot of people that wanted to do that. Uh, but I still think there were some people that wanted states to be able to do the things that they were supposed to do and limit the federal government because, you know, as we can see, there's like no limit to what uh, the Commerce Clause allows the feds to do, or at least right. they've been justified in that by the, by the Supreme Court in this Wickard v. Silbert case. And the Supreme Court back then says, in their opinion, you're right, it's not commerce, you're not selling it. You're right. It's not interstate. It's not crossing any lines. Nevertheless, what you're doing could have a substantial effect on interstate commerce. That's where they modified the Constitution. That's where they um, uh, rewrote it, basically, because it doesn't say Congress can regulate activity that substantially affects interstate commerce. It says you can regulate interstate commerce or commerce among the states. But um, so they rewrote it to magnify the uh, power of the federal government. And that's Commerce Clause thing was one of the reasons that uh, the main reason Obama pushed Obamacare. He said, well, you know, if people don't buy insurance, that substantially affects interstate commerce. He was growing something. He was doing something. You, what you want to do with Obamacare is punish people for not doing something. Mm-hmm. 
So if you don't buy health insurance, we're going to tax you. They didn't call it a tax originally, right? It was, a, it was going to be a penalty. Um, and the U.S. Supreme Court in that case said, no, the Commerce Clause doesn't cover that. You guys are going way too far in that. The Commerce Clause doesn't give you authority to tell people to do something they otherwise wouldn't do at all. Right? But Roberts and the, the majority of the Supreme Court said, but the taxing power does allow you to do that, which wasn't the main argument of Obama the whole time. And in fact, politically and in Congress, when they were trying to get it passed, they're like, this is not a tax. This is not a tax because nobody wants to, uh, it's harder to sell a tax. And they don't want to pass it to their constituents as another yeah, as tax. A tax yeah. Right. But Robert said, you know, one of your arguments you made way down here, you, you kind of said, well, if none of that works, if it's not interstate commerce clause, we sell the power to tax and that's what this is. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what the Supreme Court bought. Um, so you can see how it just, it grew and grew. And, uh, one of the few, I don't want to go too, too far in this, but you can see how it's, it's really, uh, expanded the, uh, it's it's really one, it's really one of the, uh, the keystones that the growth of the federal government is, is built upon. Right. I mean, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's the justification. It grew into the justification for the war on drugs. Uh, how, how, how so? Yeah, it was a case of Reich um, in California, where this is early on in the medical marijuana uh, history, and California had legalized medical marijuana. You know, I don't think it was legalized uh, for recreational use anywhere at that point, but medical marijuana. And these two old ladies, uh, they didn't know each other, separate cases, had been prescribed medical marijuana for whatever injuries or pain conditions that they had. And there wasn't any dispute that they were legit. I mean, the government didn't say that last. They're, they're just faking it. it you know, they, they had doctors come in and say, no, the, these ladies will be in substantial pain if they can't use the medical marijuana. But the federal government came in and raided their houses and, and took away their medical marijuana. And again, they were saying, basically making a similar argument to Wicker. It's like, hey, we're growing this for ourselves and we're using it ourselves. And this is a criminal statute. That was part of the twist on the, on the argument. So, this doesn't substantially affect interstate commerce. I'm just one lady smoking some, some weed that I've grown or somebody grew for me in one of the cases, right. but it wasn't sold. So it's not commerce, but the Supreme court in that said, yeah, yeah, that, that would affect, that could substantially affect interstate commerce and drugs and marijuana, even though it's illegal, it's still a market. And if everybody grew their own and the feds let everybody grow their own, that would basically uh, mess up their attempt to criminalize it nationally so those old ladies were without their weed it would mess up the uh the legal market all the pharmaceuticals and all that stuff but was that part of the argument no, no not no not really it would mess up the, the illegal market okay the illegal market for it and that's what the government was trying to stop the feds were trying to stop was that illegal mm-hmm. market and so allowing okay. anybody to to grow their own and smoke it even if it's medical marijuana um would substantially affect that i mean it, I, I think it's absurd it's a ridiculous mm-hmm. argument but based on Wickard v. Filburn, you can see how they got there. And you can see why the Congress, the federal government, was supposed to be limited and not to be able to tell people or regulate activity in someone's house that's they're not selling to anybody. Right? Right. But they've used interstate commerce to justify that. That's sophistry. It's just making stuff up. And that's what they've done. And, that, and a whole bunch of the federal government is now uh, uh, based on the Commerce Clause and uh, it, it's not legitimate if we actually limited Congress to what the enumerated powers actually meant, but they've expanded it and that's where we are. So, so with something like that, with that ruling, um, the commerce clause, the, the genie's out of the bottle. Um, it, 
is there any way, like, or I'm sure there is a way, but how would that get overturned? Is that even possible for there to be another ruling that would be the new president that would sort of set the wheels back in motion to shrink government that way? So that was no longer a justification to expand? It's theoretically possible. I mean, the Supreme Court could say, hey, you know what? We were wrong on Wickard v. Filburn. Um, They just overturned precedent in a case that's not nearly as important. And that was a big deal with some of the progressive people in the world because they're like, well, they just overturned precedent in this one case that dealt with whether or not a state could be sued in a different state under that other second state's laws. Mm -hmm. And they overturned that precedent. And so they're like, oh, they're going to start overturning precedent. You know what they're gearing up to do? They're gearing up to overturn Roe v. Wade. That's what they're well, that's, concerned about that's now. The big, that's a hot topic right now. Right, yeah. right. So people want, and that's why those statutes in Alabama and Georgia were passed. They know those are never going to go into effect until it gets to the Supreme Court. And unless mm-hmm. the Supreme Court overturns, in essence, Roe versus Wade, that's their goal, right? Have so, you talked about uh, Roe versus Wade? I have, indeed. Uh, episode 11, I did Roe okay. versus Wade. Yep. Um, let me see. What could be Phil Byrne is episode five. And then that Reich case, about, and it's spelled R A I C H. But I think it's pronounced Reich and not Reich. Uh, okay. That one as well. So that's on the list if you go check it out at um, thelaunchpadmedia.com. And, yeah. and on Facebook, my Facebook page for the podcast is The Law with DK Williams. Okay. Yeah. And I'll link to all these on the show notes page as well. Yeah. So and that Reich case was uh, episode 30. All right. Got it. Okay. So since uh, Roe v. Wade is you know such a hot topic right now, this is going to. You know, this is airing this week that we're yeah. talking about it. Um, what What are your thoughts on? I mean, I'm not asking your no, I'll tell pers- you. <laughs> personal thoughts, or just, just from a uh, from a standpoint a of, I mean, do, is it is it really uh, should progressives or people on the left, whatever you want to call them, should they be panicking? In a, is this something that you know uh, you said theoretically it could happen, right? But is this something that really you think could have you know the a chance of probability of of occurring within the next several years here? I, I don't think it's very likely. I, I, I don't. Um, and we started off with the Wigger v. Filbert and whether or not that could be overturned, and that could theoretically be overturned as well. I think what they more likely do is chip away at it and try to rein it back in. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's more likely or more possible. So I think the Supreme Court has done that uh, in Roe versus Wade in some instances. At least that's what a lot of the progressives say they've done. They started to cut back on it. Um, so I don't think it's likely. Um, I, I, it's possible, but I don't think it's likely. And, you know, I talk about Roe versus Wade. I think that, again, it's not a legitimate uh, power of the federal government to regulate or make abortion illegal throughout the entire country. Uh, I'm sorry, make, to make it, to ban the banning of it, to make it legal throughout the entire country, which is, you know, which is what. Right. Right. You, you can't ban it. States cannot ban it. Um, and, and their rationale. I mean, if you, when you read the opinion, they get into all this policy about, you know, first trimester, second trimester and all the differences. And, and it's really a great policy argument about abortion. But that's mm-hmm. the Supreme Court's not supposed to be dealing with policy issues. They're supposed to be dealing with the Constitution. And that's really what they've done since FDR, in many instances, is, is start to make policy and then wrap it around some constitutional hook to justify the policy that they've been discussing. Um, I mean, because in Roe versus Wade, they're like, uh, you can't ban it for the first trimester. Um, you, you, you can ban it in the third trimester. How in the world is that constitutionally based? 
I mean, those, yeah. those are policy things. I mean, you can uh, you can have that in the legislation, right? Sure, that's what legislation does. But what I mean, it, it's just um, an example of the Supreme Court making policy. They want to make the world a better place or make the United States a better place. And uh, they're using the power that they have and trying to justify it legitimately. But it's not legitimate, in my view. And I, I, I don't think there's any way it could be considered legitimate. Yeah. If you, right. care about this, if, if you care about what this Constitution says. If you just care about making social progress, in your view, you don't care about the Constitution. Well, yeah, well, that's uh, probably more people today, I would say. And I, I think a growing number of people in the legal profession probably look at the Constitution. This isn't the way I look at it, but I would say a growing number of people look at the Constitution as, a, you know, they call it a living, breathing document. That, right. you know, the, the, as they wrote the Constitution, the people who wrote the Constitution, you know, hundreds of years ago, they weren't expecting it to, to be the same. They were expecting it to evolve. So what, what kind of response would you have to that? Oh, they, they had uh, a provision for changing it. And it's been changed. You know, they, they, you can amend it. That's mm-hmm. the provision to change it. Absolutely. And they considered that. I mean, they knew that. They, they knew they couldn't think of everything. And so they put that in there and, and that's a different way to do it. Um, otherwise, the Supreme Court just becomes a nine member legislative body. You know, and, right. and yeah, and they make legislation from up, from over there, just a different way to do legislation. And very, yeah, they could become or have become in many instances more powerful than the president, right? Yeah, in many ways, mm-hmm. in many ways. So just uh, we're wrapping up here. There's a couple more uh, quick questions for you. Just want to make sure people are able to, to find your podcast. Uh, what what day of the week do you, do you publish on a certain day or is yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. Every Thursday. Every, every Thursday, Thursday one comes out in the morning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, then, okay. and, and uh, so this will publish this Friday. So what's your topic uh, this this Thursday for this week's podcast? We're gonna, I'm talking about um, uh, Flood versus Coon. It was Kurt Flood versus Bowie Coon, the baseball case. And um, okay. I mean, I, I'm interested in it for the baseball aspect of it, and we're in baseball season, but it also deals with precedent, which is what, how I'm kind of wrapping it up or tying it in with uh, what's going on now in the Supreme Court and they, that recent case that they did overturn the precedent. Progressives are worried, oh man, they're just getting ready. They're, they're just laying the table or setting the table to overturn Roe versus Wade. And so we talk about the idea of precedent because in Flood versus Kuhn, Kurt Flood, the baseball player, didn't want to be uh, tied to one club. The, his entire career, which is which was the rules back then, you couldn't, you, you were never a free agent, and he wanted to be a free agent. And the U.S. Supreme Court said, "Well, there's this case from decades ago that said baseball is not subject to the antitrust uh, statutes because it's not interstate commerce." This is them going the other way on it <laughs> because the justice at that time he wrote all this flowery stuff and he romanticized baseball as just a game. That was his. That's where he was coming from. Mm-hmm. Uh, and said baseball is just a local event. It's not interstate commerce. It's not business. But it, it's not interstate commerce. Um, it's just the fact that they have to travel between states to get there doesn't make it interstate commerce. That's com- the Supreme Court has completely thrown that out in every other situation uh, since right. then. Um, but that was the ruling back then in the 20s. And when this came up again in the 70s, they said, that's wrong, but it's precedent. So we're not going to change it. So, yeah, right, right. And, yeah, exactly. And they said Congress can change it um, because it's a, it's a statute. And we interpreted it wrong 50 years ago or whatever it was. Congress can fix it, but it's our mistake. We perpetuated that mistake. We're not going to fix that mistake. It's up to Congress. Now, the dissent was basically feeling like you and I were going, well, if it was wrong, just fix it. It's your mistake and fix it. 
Uh, so it's idea of precedent and how sometimes really bad precedent is upheld, even when the court is basically acknowledging, yeah, that was bad precedent, but stare decisis, that's the Latin term for we've got to give credit to or, or, or abide by the prior uh, decisions of this court. So that's all ties in. What, so what is the what kind of <laughs> pr- like what's the reason for that i guess you call it a, a judicial principle or yep. what the, the latin word you say, what, what, yep. what's the what's the backbone for that what? the idea is that we want uh consistency in the law we don't want the law changing all the time we want people to be able to rely on what we've said we don't want them worrying about us you know changing something that we said before they're making business plans or planning their lives or whatever they're trying right, to right. do and we don't want to switch that up all the time. Um, so that, that's the basis for it. And that's why uh, even judges that will vote to change precedent um, will discuss that and go, just because I think that case was wrongly decided, I'm not going to vote to overturn it because of mm-hmm. that, those principles. But if it's really bad, they, they will and they have. Um, you know, uh, Brown v. Board of Education overturned the precedent of Plessy v. Ferguson. So it happens, and that, I mean, that's the famous one. It does happen. They just don't want to do it all the time, or at least that's what a lot of them don't want to do it too much. Um, so that's where we are on that. Okay. All right, DK. Well, I want to thank you once again for being so generous with your time here. And if you could just tell uh, my listeners just one more time where they can find your podcast, anything else you're working on, just uh, plug away. I'm glad to do it, man. Thank you very much for having me on. It's the Law with DK Williams, the name of the podcast, comes out every Thursday morning. And you can go to the launchpadmedia.com and find it there with a bunch of other libertarian type uh, podcasts of all, of all stripes. And uh, go to my Facebook page for the podcast, which is The Law with DK Williams. And uh, you can find the links there to all of them as well. And check out my, my personal uh, blog. It's bluecarp.com. No, bluecarp.net, sorry, .net. Um, that's got some uh, legal stuff, but also got some. Uh, popular culture type things as well. So check it out. Let me know what you think. Hit me up. I'd love to hear from you. And if you have any ideas or suggestions, anybody, I want to hear them. Before I let you go, if you could just tell us yeah. what blue carp. Yes. Is. <laughs> <laughs> I came up with this a long time ago, but uh, I, I still, I'm still using it. My personal Facebook page is it's, you know, facebook.com slash blue carp. And I, that's my Twitter as well. So check those out as well. But all right. So, Blue, obviously, it can mean a, a, like a fish, like a koi, right? Carps are koi. Mm-hmm. You can have a pretty fish. But blue also means like sad, like I got the blues, right? And it can also mean kind of like off color or inappropriate, like, oh, man, that comic works blue, right? Right, right, right? It's kind of old language, but, you know, it, it's, it's there. Um, and carp is not only a fish, it's a complaint. Like, I wish that guy would stop carping about this. So... That's some double, maybe even triple meanings there to uh, a, a, a blue koi fish, a blue carp. It's a very, That's- very, very artistic uh, <laughs> mind you have there. Like, very creative. Uh, obscure that nobody else gets, but I understand. <laughs> All right, DK. Well, thank you for coming on. We'll talk soon. Thank you very much, John. Bye. All right. Want to thank DK Williams once again for coming on today's episode. Just a, a wealth of knowledge. You know, it's good. It's actually a it's a change up to bring <laughs> to bring on someone on Felony Friday who actually is trained in the law to be able to talk on a lot of this stuff. Uh, 
you know, I get asked all the time, you know, more than I would actually expect to be asked. I think it's pretty apparent that I'm not a lawyer, the way that I approach uh, these interviews and the way I talk about the criminal justice system. But I do get asked from time to time or people assume that I'm a lawyer. So it is nice to have on an actual lawyer to answer a lot of questions that I have. And uh, it was great to, to talk with DK and to get into the details on a lot of these very important decisions. Supreme Court decisions and otherwise that really have had a huge impact on the way that uh, you know our government has expanded and intervened in our lives to to this day and they continue to do um, really the uh, the genesis of that. So thanks once again, DK, for coming on the show. Be sure to please. Uh, check out the Launchpad Media, of course. That's our friend Johnny Rocket. That's his. Uh, that's his baby there. That's his uh, podcasting network. And DK Williams' podcast, The Law, is uh, one of the podcasts. One of many great podcasts on the Launchpad Media. So head over there. I'll link to it on the show notes page at lionsofliberty.com/ff177. I'll link to everything that DK and I talked about, all the different uh, episodes, and of course. To where you can find the podcast. So I'm keeping it real brief today. I'll just mention one more time: if you guys love this show, if you love Brian's show, if you love if you love Mark's show, if you're still listening to my show at this point, I think you love this show. So please go to Patreon.com/slash Lions of Liberty. Consider supporting us. We really appreciate that. Or you know what? If you don't want to do that, another great way to support us, if you drink coffee, as I talked about at the very tippy top of the show, if you drink coffee, if you love coffee, if you are a coffee addict, please consider picking up a bag of The Morning Roar. It is a delicious coffee. I drink it myself every single day. And you can find that at lionsofliberty.com slash coffee. Make sure to buy it through that link there. It'll take you to a link on Anarcho Coffee. But be sure to go through the link on lionsofliberty.com slash coffee because that's how we get paid. And if we don't get paid, then I don't care if you drink the coffee because that's the whole reason we're doing this. But seriously, the coffee is delicious. Check it out. LionsofLiberty.com slash coffee. Thank you guys so, so much for listening. I appreciate all of your support. And uh, please share this show. Spread it far and wide. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fires of liberty burning. Burning.